All the things that Christ did for our salvation are unique. He was able to perform his redeeming work in approximately three years of ministry. Today, I would like to highlight three purposes for the Savior's life on earth. The first and greatest purpose was the unrivaled and amazing assignment that he received from his Father to carry out an infinite and eternal sacrifice for all humanity. As Heavenly Father's only begotten Son in the flesh, he inherited all his Father's divine qualities, and from his earthly mother, Mary, he inherited mortal characteristics. Only his sacrifice could rescue us from our mortal and fallen state. He came to the world with the specific purpose to give his life, since only his life could give us eternal life. No mortal being in the past, present, or future of the existence of the earth has lived or will live to carry out the atonement of our sins. He is our Savior and Redeemer. He will return again to govern and rule among us with great power and glory. The second purpose for having dwelt among us was to teach the doctrine that he learned from his Father, which includes the ordinances and covenants of salvation and exaltation. His doctrine is one of love, forgiveness, and mercy. It is the way to live in peace and harmony among men and the way to return to live with God. His third purpose was to build the kingdom by serving others. This was a different type of leadership. Service is a characteristic of his followers, a divine quality. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, had washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given to you, given you an example that ye should do as I done to you. He lived to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal all manner of sickness. To teach his doctrine and to serve our fellow men are two responsibilities that we accepted when we were baptized. This converted us into the true servant of Christ. On one occasion, after teaching his doctrine, he had compassion of the people and performed the miracle of multiplying the loaves of bread and fish and feeding the multitude, revealing to us his character of compassion and service. The next day, the multitude was even greater because of the food that they have received. He taught them with determination and with eternal vision. Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. As a church, we should feed the hungry, relieve the sick, clothe the naked, and give shelter to the destitute. With fast offering, we alleviate the basic and immediate needs of the members, and with the welfare plan, we have met their long-term needs. 
When there are natural disasters, throughout humanitarian service, we provide assistance for our brothers and sisters who are not of our faith. Without neglecting these temporal needs, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, by commandment of the Lord, maintained the most sublime and lofty labor of service, which is to bless all men by teaching them the doctrine of Christ and inviting them to receive the saving ordinances so that they might gain immortality and eternal life. I know that God loves us. He allows us to exercise our moral agency even when we misuse it. He permits us to make our own decisions. Christ cannot help us if we do not trust him. He cannot teach us if we don't serve him. He will not force us to do what's right, but he will show us the way only when we decided to serve him. Certainly for us to serve in his kingdom, Christ requires that we experience a, a change of thought and attitude. For how knoweth a man the master who he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? I testify that through serving our fellow men, we come to know the Lord. Service makes us strong in our faith and useful in his kingdom. Service gives us purpose and courage in life. It brings us closer to God and helps us refine our divine nature. It teaches us to love and understand our fellow men, and it helps us forget about our personal desires, eliminating selfishness, pride, and ingratitude. It teaches us to think of the needs of others, which allow us to develop the virtues that the Savior possesses. Kindness, love, patience, understanding, and unity will increase as we serve, while intolerance, jealousy, envy, greed, and selfishness decrease or disappear. The more that we give of ourselves, the more our capacity to serve understand and love will grow. Those who serve will always seek <clears throat> to please God and live in harmony with Him. They will be full of peace. They will save, they will have a cheerful countenance and a spirit of kindness. Those who serve will strive to ennoble, build, and live their fellow men. Therefore, they will find the good in others, and they will not find reason or have time to become offended. They develop the virtue of praying for those who criticize them. They don't expect recognition or reward. They possess the love of Christ. Those who serve will always be willing to share what they possess and what they know at all times, in all places, and with all people. Those who serve even in adversity, will maintain a living hope of a better future. They will continue to be firm in the midst of a crisis because their hope is in Christ. Those who serve will accept their assignments with humility, recognizing their limitations, but convinced that two people can do all things they propose to do as long 
us. One of the two people is God. With divine inspiration, King Benjamin declared, when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Those who serve will have greater understanding of the personality and attributes of God. Those who serve with devotion, even when things don't turn out the way they would like, are not easily discouraged, fatigued, or frustrated, because the promise of peace of mind and the companionship of the Holy Spirit will never abandon them. In the Church are tens of thousands of members who selflessly serve in more than 170 nations in a great diversity of tongues and languages. They give unselfish service through leadership, teaching, and care of others, without salary or material reward, without applause or worldly recognitions. They give all their time, their talents, and their resources. They sacrifice all that they have and serve efficiently and marvelously well. After a certain time, they are released to give the opportunity of service to others. Because of this, of his doctrine and his service, the restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is constantly blessing the lives of its members. We thank God for all of you, faithful saints, who have felt the joy of service and pray that God always will bless you for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brethren of the priesthood, I am grateful to be with you at this session of General Conference on this historic day. We admire those who risk their lives to, to rescue those in danger. When I visited Southern California during the devastating Santa Ana wind fires late last year, I came away with two impressions. The first was how the Church members came to the assistance of those in need. The second was how appreciative they were to the firefighters. One homeowner described what he saw the firefighters do. He pointed out that the Santa Ana winds blow from the warm desert toward the ocean. Once a fire starts, these hot desert winds carry the flames at a speed of up to 60 or 70 miles per hour. The homeowner described his gratitude and admiration as he watched the firefighters standing with their hoses behind a cleared area, facing a wall of fire up to 10 feet high, descending upon them at this enormous speed. These brave men and women were able to rescue both people and homes while in constant personal danger. From time to time, as individuals and as a Church, we go through periods of crisis and danger. Some arise quickly, like a fire. Others are subtle and go almost undetected before they are upon us. Some require heroic action, but most are less spectacular. The way we respond is crucial. My purpose this evening is to re-emphasize to priesthood holders the importance of heeding the words of the prophets. This is one sure way to respond to physical and spiritual dangers of all kinds. Some illustrations may, may be helpful. Many of you have participated in treks to experience and appreciate the dramatic rescue of the Willie and Martin handcart companies. I first became aware of this rescue when I was a teenager. 
My mother gave me a book written by Orson F. Whitney, who would later be an apostle. Elder Whitney's book acquainted me with the heroic effort directed by Brigham Young to rescue the handcart companies. They had been overtaken by winter storms on the high plains of Wyoming. Some had died, and many others were on the verge of death. Brigham Young became aware of their plight, and at the October 1856 General Conference, he instructed the Saints to drop everything and rescue those stranded on the plains. The response was dramatic. Elder Whitney reported, Brave men, by their heroism, for it was at the peril of their own lives that they thus braved the wintry storms on the plains, immortalized themselves, and won the undying gratitude of hundreds who were undoubtedly saved by their timely action from perishing. One reason my mother had given me the book was Elder Whitney had made special mention of my great-grandfather, David Patton Kimball, who had participated in the rescue when he was 17 years old. All the rescuers battled deep snow and freezing temperatures during much of the rescue of the handcart companies. At great personal sacrifice, David and his associates helped carry many of the pioneers across the freezing, ice-filled Sweetwater. This true account greatly impressed me. I wanted to prove my devotion to the Lord through some dramatic act. However, in a visit with my grandfather, he explained that when President Brigham Young sent his father, David, and the other young men on their rescue mission, President Young instructed them to do everything they possibly could to save the handcart companies, even at the peril of their own lives. Their acts of bravery were specifically to follow the prophet Brigham Young and by so doing express their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. My grandfather told me that consistent, faithful dedication to the counsel of the prophet is the real lesson I should learn from my great-grandfather's service. As heroic as it was for David and his associates to help rescue the pioneers, it is also valiant today to follow the counsel of our prophet. An often told account from the Old Testament illustrates this principle. Naaman, a prominent leader in Syria, was afflicted with leprosy. He became aware that the prophet Elijah in Israel might be able to heal him. Elisha sent word by a messenger that Naaman should wash himself in the river Jordan seven times. Initially, Naaman was upset with this counsel. However, his servants said, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? Then Naaman followed the counsel of the prophet Elisha, and he was made clean. Like Naaman, you young priesthood holders might aspire to do some great thing or participate in some dramatic like the handcart rescue. However, your resolve should be to follow the counsel of the prophet. The First Presidency has reaffirmed its commitment to increasing the worthiness of young people who are recommended for missionary service. Keeping yourselves free from the sins of the world and meeting the high standards for missionary service should be one goal. Preparing yourselves to proclaim the gospel and rescue some of Heavenly Father's children spiritually would be both significant and heroic 
you can meet this challenge. Throughout history, a loving Father in Heaven and His Son Jesus Christ, who is the head of the Church, have blessed us with prophets who counsel and warn about future dangers. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 21, speaking specifically of the prophet, the Lord declares, Thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. For his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. We have had the great privilege this morning in a solemn assembly to sustain President Thomas S. Monson as our prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the 16th president of the Church in this dispensation. Later in this priesthood session of conference, we will be blessed to hear his first general conference address as president of the Church. We will want to sustain him with our hearts and our actions as we pay careful attention to what he teaches and what we feel. My love and appreciation for our previous prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, is planted deeply in my heart and will remain with me throughout the eternities. But just as there is room in our hearts for all the children who come into our families, we have that same love and devotion for each prophet the Lord calls to lead His Church. Prophets are inspired to provide us with prophetic priorities to protect us from dangers. As an example, President Heber J. Grant, the prophet from 1918 to 1945, was inspired to emphasize adherence to the word of wisdom, the principle with the promise revealed by the Lord to the prophet Joseph. He stressed the importance of not smoking or drinking alcoholic beverages and directed the bishops to review these principles in Temple Recommend interviews. At that time, smoking was accepted by society as an appropriate, even glamorous, behavior. The medical profession accepted smoking with little concern because the scientific studies linking cigarette smoking with several kinds of cancer were far in the future. President Grant counseled with great vigor and we became known as a people who abstained from drinking and smoking. Starting in the late 1960s, illegal drug use reached epidemic proportions throughout the world. While there were some members who rebelled, the vast majority of LDS youth were able to avoid the devastating use of drugs. Obeying the word of wisdom gave our members, especially our youth, a preventive inoculation against drug use and the resulting health problems and moral hazards. Unfortunately, there appears to be a resurgence of drug use in our own day. Living the word of wisdom today will free you from some of the most serious dangers you can face in this life. Sometimes prophets teach us prophetic priorities that provide protection for us now and in the future. As an example, President David O. McKay was the prophet from 1951 to 1970. One area of significant focus was his emphasis on the family. He taught that no success in life can compensate for failure in the home. He encouraged members to strengthen families by increasing religious observance. His teachings were a protection from the disintegration of the institution of marriage that came after his death. Because of President McKay's teaching, the Latter-day Saints strengthened their commitment to family and eternal marriage. 
As the priesthood holders of the Church, it is our solemn responsibility to follow our prophet. We sustain President Monson and his counselors, President Eyring and President Uchtdorf. We want you young people to know that President Thomas S. Monson has been prepared by the Lord from his youth to be the prophet. After serving in the Navy at the close of World War II, he was ordained as a bishop at age 22 and then served in a stake presidency. At 32 years of age, he served as a mission president in Canada with his sweetheart and companion, Francis Monson. He was called to be an apostle by President McKay when he was only 36 years old. He is the youngest man called as an apostle in the past 98 years and has served for over 44 years. The last 22 years, he has served as a counselor to Presidents Ezra Taft Benson, Howard W. Hunter, and Gordon B. Hinckley. Section 81 of the Doctrine and Covenants sets forth instructions to a counselor in the First Presidency. It contains important priesthood principles. The first instruction is be faithful in counsel. President Monson has faithfully counseled with each of the three prophets under whom he has served. The unity of the First Presidency in all of their important decisions has been an example to all of us as priesthood holders in the exercise of Church government. The second instruction is proclaiming the gospel. President Monson has been a great missionary all his life. His personal missionary effort, his supervisory work of the missionary department, and his calling and training of mission presidents have been undertaken with enthusiasm. He made significant contributions to the new missionary guide, Preach My Gospel. In addition to valuable content contributions, he inspired the inclusion of true accounts to make the guide come alive. With his printer's eye, he improved the design and layout. He is indeed a great missionary. The third instruction reads, Wherefore, be faithful. Stand in the office which I have appointed unto you. Succor the weak. Lift up the hands which hang down. And strengthen the feeble needs. Many of our brothers and sisters face devastating problems in their lives. It is in our Christ-like outreach to them that we as priesthood leaders, parents, friends, and home teachers can be like the handcart company rescuers. President Monson's rescue efforts in this regard have been particularly exemplary. As a bishop, he learned to minister to the members of his ward. He has kept in touch with and served their children and grandchildren. Despite a demanding schedule, he was able to speak at the funerals of all 84 of the widows who lived in his ward when he was bishop. He has reached out to those in need in a remarkable and personal way. His long years of oversight of humanitarian efforts has blessed people all over the world, both members and those not of our faith. His personal ministry has been Christ-like and has given comfort and peace to countless numbers of people. One friend of mine who lost a grandson in a tragic accident told me that his grief was almost beyond comprehension. President Monson's ministering to him turned almost overwhelming grief to the peace that surpasses understanding. His effort to personally minister to those who are sick and afflicted has been extraordinary. President Monson has done his very best to succor the weak, lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. He has magnified his calling as a counselor in the First Presidency in a remarkable way. 
He has valiantly testified of the name of Jesus Christ in all the world, which is the primary responsibility of all apostles. As the then junior member of the Twelve participating in my first reorganization of the First Presidency in an upper room of the Salt Lake Temple this past February, I experienced the confirmation of the Spirit as the Twelve individually and unanimously sustained President Monson as the Lord's Prophet and President of the Church. I am grateful for our Father in Heaven who loves us and for His Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and, through the Atonement, our ultimate rescuer from the physical and spiritual dangers of life. He is our Advocate with the Father. Of this I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul boldly declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. This same boldness is declared by our full-time missionaries as they serve in many parts of the world. Essentially, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a five-ingredient recipe for eternal life. First, let us consider what can become of us if we follow this recipe, and then we can consider each of the ingredients. What do we know about eternal life? We learn from Moses 1 and 39 that the Lord's work and glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. This teaches us that immortality and eternal life are separate and distinct. The gift of eternal life, which is promised only when certain conditions are met, is so much greater than the gift of immortality. According to Elder Bruce R. McConkie, eternal life is not a name that has reference only to an unending duration of future life. Immortality is to live forever in a resurrected state, and by the grace of God, all men will gain this unending continuance of life. But only those who obey the fullness of the gospel law will inherit eternal life. It is the greatest gift of all gifts of God, for it is the kind, the status, the type, the quality of life that God Himself enjoys. Thus those who gain eternal life receive exaltation. They are sons of God, joint heirs of Christ, members of His Church of the firstborn. They overcome all things. They have all power and receive the fullness of the Father. The duty of our missionaries, as stated in page one of Preach My Gospel, is to invite others to come unto Christ by helping them receive the restored gospel through faith in Jesus Christ and His Atonement, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. In many cookbooks, there are pictures of perfect dishes that recipes make, the fullness of the joy of cooking. These pictures are important because they help us envision the outcome if we strictly follow the directions as given in the recipe. It is important to begin with an end in mind, but the end represented by the pictures in the cookbook is an end that is only possible if everything is done right. 
If directions are not followed, or an ingredient is left out, or miscalculated, the desired taste and appearance are seldom obtained. The picture of a perfect dish, however, can serve as motivation to try again to create something that is both delicious and beautiful. When we think of eternal life, what is the picture that comes to our mind? I believe that if we could create in our mind a clear and true picture of eternal life, we would start behaving differently. We would not need to be prodded to do the many things involved with enduring to the end, like doing our home teaching or visiting teaching, attending our meetings, going to the temple, living moral lives, saying our prayers or reading the scriptures. We would want to do all these things and more because we realize that they will help prepare us to go somewhere. We yearn to go. Why does a missionary's purpose need to begin by helping others receive faith in Jesus Christ and His Atonement? In order to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, a person must first embrace Him whose gospel it is. A person must trust the Savior and what He has taught us. They must believe that He has power to keep His promises to give, given to us by virtue of the Atonement. When someone has faith in Jesus Christ, they accept and apply His Atonement and His teachings. The, ta- the Savior taught His disciples, as recorded in the 27th chapter of Third Nephi, the interdependence of His gospel and His earthly ministry and Atonement when He said, Behold, I give unto you my gospel, And this is the gospel which I give unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. And it shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled. And if he endures to the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. Faith in Jesus Christ and His Atonement turns us to Him. The world teaches us that seeing is believing, but our faith in our Lord leads us to believe so that we can see Him and the Father's plan for us. Our faith also leads to action. It leads us to commitments and changes associated with true repentance, as Amulek taught in the third chapter of Alma. Therefore, only unto him that has faith and to repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption. Therefore, may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that ye begin to call upon his holy name, that he would have mercy upon you. Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty. To save. Why do individuals repent before they are baptized and receive the Holy Ghost? The voice of Christ proclaimed to the Nephites and into the law of sacrifice. And then he said, And ye shall offer a sacrifice unto me, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me 
with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. This same requirement is discussed in the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants in a verse we often use to describe the requirements for baptism. Verse 37 states, All those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the Church that they have truly repented of all their sins shall be received by baptism into His Church. These verses of Scripture teach essential lessons about the nature of repentance as preparation for baptism and receiving the Holy Ghost. First, repentance involves an attitude of humility. In order to prepare to be baptized and take upon ourselves the name of Christ, we must humble ourselves before Him and offer our sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit and accept His will. Second, we learn that persons must witness before Christ or a representative of the Church that they have repented of all their sins. Finally, they recognize that repentance, which is a cleansing process, precedes baptism, which is a cleansing ordinance, in order to prepare someone to receive the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is a third member of the Godhead. The gift of the Holy Ghost is only available to those who are cleansed by the repentance of their sins of the world. Why do we need baptism to receive the Holy Ghost? Orson F. Whitney taught, Baptism is twofold. It has a double mission to perform. It not only cleanses, it illuminates the soul. It makes manifest the things of God, past, present, future, and imparting a sure testimony of truth. The soul cleansed of sin is in a condition to enjoy the abiding influence of the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth not in unclean tabernacles. Water baptism begins the work of purification and enlightenment. Spirit baptism completes it. The ordinance of baptism by water and fire is described as a gate by Nephi. Why is baptism a gate? Because it is an ordinance denoting an entry into a sacred and binding covenant between God and man. Men promise to forsake the world, to love and serve their fellow men, visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, proclaim peace, preach the gospel, serve the Lord, and keep His commandments. The Lord promises to pour out His Spirit more abundantly upon us, redeem His saints both temporally and spiritually, numbering them among the first resurrection and offering life eternal. Baptism and receiving the Holy Ghost are prescribed ways to enter the straight and narrow path to eternal life. According to the Apostle Paul, Baptism also denotes our descent into a watery grave from which we are raised with a newness of life in Christ. The ordinance of baptism symbolizes Christ's death and resurrection, 
We die with Him so we can live with Him. In a sense, baptism is the first saving ordinance, and receiving the Holy Ghost helps each of us press forward and endure to the end. How do we endure to the end? Enduring to the end requires faithfulness to the end. As in the case of Paul who told Timothy, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Obviously, this is not an easy task. It is intended to be difficult, challenging, and ultimately refining as we prepare to enter and live with our Father in heaven and receive eternal blessings. Enduring to the end is definitely not a do-it-yourself project. First, it requires the Savior's redempting power. We cannot return to our Heavenly Father's presence unless we are clean, and so we must ultimately repent. Ideally, we repent moment by moment, but we also attend sacrament meeting each week to partake of the sacrament and renew our baptismal covenants. Second, enduring to the end requires the Holy Ghost, who will both guide and sanctify us. Third, we must be an integral part of a community of saints, serving and receiving service from our brothers and sisters in the gospel. With baptism, we become part of the body of Christ. Each of us has a role to play. Each of us is important. But in order to succeed, we must be unified in our Savior. Fourth, we must share the gospel with others. The promise of bringing even one soul unto the Lord are profound and eternal. Moreover, the gospel takes deeper root in those who share it frequently. Finally, we must always maintain faith and hope in Christ to endure to the end. And among the many ways we do this are praying, fasting, and reading the scriptures. These practices will fortify us against the subtle schemes and fiery darts of the adversary. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it defines the way we can partake of the fruits of the tree of life, experience the exceeding great joy that only it can bring and endure to the end through all of the challenges of mortal life. The gospel teaches us all we need to know to return and live with our Father in heaven as resurrected and glorified beings. May all of us maintain in our mind a vision of eternal life. May we be diligent in following the recipe of eternal life. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we endure to the end. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I bear solemn witness of how deeply I love our new prophet, seer, and revelator, President Thomas S. Monson. How deeply I trust him and how I'm willing to do whatever he asks me to do. Some matters are so sensitive and intensely personal and can awaken such disturbing feelings that they are seldom mentioned publicly. 
yet if tenderly and compassionately treated in the light of truth, discussion of these matters can bring greater understanding with the easing of pain and the blessing of healing and even the avoidance of further tragedy. It is with a deep desire to define a path to relief that I speak to you who suffer the shattering consequences of mental, verbal, physical, and especially sexual abuse. I speak also to those of you who cause it. I will focus on sexual abuse, although the counsel given should help the victims of other mistreatment. My intent is to act as a mirror so that divine healing light can illuminate the dark clouds of distress caused by others' unrighteous acts. May I be aided to communicate understandably, to provide help, and not further complicated damaged life. It is also likely that greater understanding and awareness and sensitivity may permit some of the rest of us to help resolve or prevent the tragedy of abuse in additional victims. The rising tide of this vicious, abominable sin may not have touched your life personally, but it is pervasive enough in the world that it may have touched someone you love. It frequently causes such profound suffering that can be overcome that I want to speak about healing can be obtained. It will be done reverently, for my objective is to help heal and not aggravate painful memories. Oral agency is a vital element in Father in Heaven's plan of happiness. He understood that some of his spirit children would use that agency improperly, causing serious problems to others. Some would even violate sacred trusts, such as a father or family member abusing an innocent child. Since our Heavenly Father is completely just, there has to be a way of overcoming the tragic consequences of such damaging use of agency for both the victim and the perpetrator. That secure healing comes through the power of the Atonement of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to rectify that which is unjust. When combined with complete repentance, the Atonement also affords the perpetrator a, a way to avoid the severe punishment the Lord has decreed for such acts. I testify that I know victims of serious abuse who have successfully made the difficult journey to full healing through the power of the Atonement. After her own concerns were resolved by her faith in the healing power of the Atonement, one young woman who had been severely abused by her father requested another interview with me. She returned with an older couple. I could sense that she loved the two very deeply. Her face radiated happiness. She began, Elder Scott, this is my father. I love him. He's concerned about some things that happened in my early childhood. They're no longer a problem for me. Could you help him? What a powerful confirmation of the Savior's capacity to heal. She no longer suffered from the consequences of abuse because she had adequate understanding of His Atonement. 
sufficient faith, and was obedient to his law. As you conscientiously study the Atonement and exercise your faith that Jesus Christ has the power to heal, you can receive the same blessed relief. Satan is the author of all the destructive outcomes of abuse. He has extraordinary capacity to lead an individual into blind alleys where the solution to extremely challenging problems cannot be found. His strategy is to separate the suffering soul from the healing attainable from a compassionate and living Father and a loving Redeemer. If you have been abused, Satan will strive to convince you that there is no solution. Yet he knows perfectly well that there is. Satan recognizes that healing comes through the unwavering love of a heavenly Father for each of his children. He also understands that the power of healing is inherent in the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Therefore, his strategy is to do all possible to separate you from your Father and his Son. Do not let Satan convince you that you are beyond help. Satan uses your abuse to undermine your self-confidence, destroy trust in authority, create fear, and generate feelings of despair. Abuse can damage your ability to form healthy human relationships. You must have faith that all of these negative consequences can be resolved. Otherwise, they will keep you from full recovery. While these outcomes have powerful influence in your life, they do not define the real you. Satan will strive to alienate you from your Father in Heaven with the thought if he loved you, he would have prevented the tragedy. Recognize that if you have feelings that you are not loved by your Heavenly Father, you're being manipulated by Satan. Even when it may seem very difficult to pray, kneel and ask Father in Heaven to give you the capacity to trust Him and to feel His love for you. Ask to come to know that His Son can heal you through His merciful Atonement. To preserve moral agency, the Lord does not restrain individuals from improper use of that agency. However, He will punish them for such acts unless there is full repentance. Our Father provided a way to heal the consequences of acts that through force, misuse of authority, or fear of another temporarily take away the agency of the abused. <clears throat> the beginning of healing requires childlike faith in the unalterable fact <clears throat> that Father in Heaven loves you and has supplied a way to heal. His beloved Jesus, Son Jesus Christ laid down His life to provide that healing. But there is no magic solution, no simple balm to provide healing, nor is there an easy path to the complete remedy. The cure requires profound faith in Jesus Christ and in His infinite capacity to heal. It is rooted in an understanding of doctrine 
and a resolute determination to follow it. Healing may begin with a thoughtful bishop or stake president. Serious abuse can also benefit from professional help. There are many ways to begin healing, but remember, a full cure comes through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Master and Redeemer. Have faith that with effort, His perfect, eternal, infinite Atonement can heal your suffering from the consequences of abuse. As impossible that may seem to you now, in time the healing you can receive from the Savior will allow you to truly forgive the abuser and even have feelings of sorrow for him or her. When you can forgive the offense, you'll be relieved of the pain and heartache that Satan wants in your life by encouraging you to hate the abuser. While an important part of healing, if the thought of forgiveness causes you yet more pain, set that step aside until you have more experience with the Savior's healing power in your own life. If you are currently being abused or have been in the past, find the courage to seek help. You may have been severely threatened or caused to fear so that you would not reveal the abuse. Have the courage to act now. Seek the support of someone you can trust. Your bishop or stake president can give you valuable counsel and help you with the civil authorities. Explain how you have been abused and identify who has done it. Ask for protection. Your action may help others avoid becoming innocent victims with a consequent suffering. Get help now. Do not fear, for fear is a tool Satan will use to keep you suffering. The Lord will help you, but you must reach out for that help. Remember that predators are skillful at cultivating a public appearance of, appearance of piety to mask their despicable acts. You'll be guided in your efforts to receive help. That support will come, rest assured, that the perfect judge, Jesus the Christ, with a perfect knowledge of the details, will hold all abusers accountable for every unrighteous act. In time, he will fully apply the required demands of justice unless there is complete repentance. Therefore, you should leave punishment for the diabolical acts of abuse to civil and Church authorities, not of the perpetrator who is a shadow to the life and the other through abuse. Recognize that you need help with your addiction or it will destroy you. You will not overcome it by yourself. You likely need specialized professional help. I plead with you to seek to be rescued now. You likely have deceived yourself with the false temporary security that you have successfully hidden your transgression from civil or Church authorities. But know that the Lord Jesus Christ is completely aware of your sins. Know that even without action by a victim, your act of abuse will be publicly known, for Satan will expose you then abandon you. 
Simplify your life by taking steps now to cleanse your soul from such sin and resolve the penalties that they evoke. Share your desire to heal the anguish you've caused others. Talk to your bishop or stake president. The seriousness of your acts may require you to face civil or church discipline, but full repentance will bring the sweet relief of forgiveness, peace of conscience, and a renewed life. It will also bring relief to the abused and their families. You'll be free of the weight of remorse and accusing thoughts of what you've caused in grief and anguish in another's life. You'll be helped when you decide to be freed from your addiction through repentance and the support of others. Parents, in appropriate and sensitive ways, teach your children the potential danger of abuse and how to avoid it. Be aware of warning signs such as an abrupt change in a child's behavior that may signal a problem. Be alert to a child's unsettled feelings that identif and identify their origin. To use who hold the keys of a judge in Israel painstakingly assure that every individual that is suffering from abuse receives appropriate help. The Church Handbook and the Helpline listed there are valuable resources to guide your ecclesiastical action and coordination with civil authorities. Carefully supervise the participation of any individuals who may have had past offenses. Recognize that it's very unlikely that a perpetrator will confess his depraved acts. Seek the guidance of the Spirit when you feel that something may be amiss. Enlist the help of the ward and stake leaders to avoid potential dangers. I pray that you, as one abused or one who has caused it, will act now to avail yourself of the healing power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. I testify that your faith and obedience will assure that He will help you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What a blessing and privilege it is for us to sustain President Thomas S. Monson, President Henry B. Eyring, and President Dieter F. Uchtdorf as the new First Presidency of the Lord's Church. I first learned the importance of the First Presidency as a boy growing up in Western Canada. When I would go to Grandma and Grandpa Walker's home, I was greeted in the entry by a framed photo of the First Presidency of the Church. I remember it well. It seemed that they stood as sentinels greeting all who entered. The beautiful photo was of President George Albert Smith with his counselors, J. Reuben Clark, Jr. and David O. McKay. I loved the picture. They were such handsome and dignified men. I knew them as the prophet of God and his counselors. That picture hanging in the front foyer of my grandparents' home had a powerful influence on me. I lived in the small prairie town of Raymond where my grandparents lived. I could walk to their home, so I visited often. I remember frequently standing quietly alone in the foyer, reverently looking at that picture of the First Presidency. 
I remember thinking about why my grandparents thought it was so important to honor the First Presidency and have that picture prominently displayed in their home. All who entered would see it. Perhaps most importantly for their children and grandchildren, it was a constant reminder of what was deeply important in the hearts and lives of Grandma and Grandpa. Years later, I concluded that displaying the picture of the First Presidency was equivalent to Joshua's beautiful expression, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All who entered the home of James and Fanny Walker knew that written upon their hearts were the words, As for us and our house, we will serve the Lord. As their grandson, I knew it, and I have never forgotten it. As a boy, I didn't understand so well the significance of there being three in the first presidency rather than having one president. I knew, of course, that Jesus had selected Peter, James, and John, not just Peter. I knew that my father was one of three men in the bishopric serving as a counselor to Bishop J. O. Hicken. I knew that my grandfather was the stake president and that he had two counselors who stood beside him, President John Allen and President Leslie Palmer. In every case, a presidency, not just consisting of one man as the leader, but as three who led together. In primary, I had learned the Articles of Faith and grew to love them. The Articles of Faith give our youth comfort and confidence as they learn the fundamental doctrines of the Church. I then knew that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who were in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. In 1835, the Lord revealed to the Prophet Joseph Smith the proper order of presidencies in the Church. Of necessity, there are presidents or presiding officers. Of the Melchizedek priesthood, three presiding high priests, chosen by the body, appointed and ordained to that office, and upheld by the confidence, faith, and prayer of the Church. They form a quorum of the presidency of the Church, a quorum of three presidents. Not a president and two vice presidents, but three presiding high priests, a quorum of three presidents, the first presidency of the Lord's Church. The world does not organize itself this way, but this is how the Lord organized and structured His Church. It brings to mind the scripture, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. At about the time of my seventh birthday, I learned a little about succession in the presidency when President George Albert Smith passed away. Sometime later, the picture in Grandma and Grandpa's foyer was replaced by a beautiful picture of President David O. McKay and his counselors Stephen L. Richards and J. Reuben Clark, Jr. As a boy, I certainly didn't understand the deep significance or the process of succession in the presidency, but I knew that the prophet had died and that we were led by a new prophet of God with two counselors at his side. At age 13, I was called into Bishop Murray Holt's office, and he extended a call to me to serve as the president of the deacons' quorum. He told me I needed to go home and pray about who my counselors should be. He taught me that the Lord would help me decide. He did. 
I then learned about counselors, and I began to see why the Lord has His Church directed by presidencies, not just presidents. I loved my counselors in the deacons' quorum, and we prayed and worked hard to help the boys in our quorum. Bishop Holt taught me the pattern of presidencies and taught me how a presidency should operate and function in the Lord's Church. When I later served as president of other quorums, I already knew the importance of counselors, and I knew that the Lord would help me choose them just as my bishop had taught me. As a deacon's quorum president and later as bishop and stake president, I knew that whatever wisdom, understanding, or capacity I had, it would be magnified considerably when I included my counselors in any decision that needed to be made. I learned that the benefits of serving together as a presidency were magnificent and magnifying. I came to understand why the Lord appointed that His Church should be led by three presiding high priests and that, the form, and that form of leadership would be prescribed throughout most of the Church. The Lord said, I will give you a pattern in all things that ye may not be deceived. He has given us the pattern of leadership. With the exception of the Quorum of the Twelve and the Seventy, all Church quorums are led by a president and two counselors. Additionally, the auxiliaries at all levels are led by a president and two counselors. All the blessings and benefits of serving together as a presidency apply to auxiliaries as well as to the priesthood quorums. Every one of us who serve in presidencies anywhere in the Church should look to the First Presidency as our pattern and the example that we seek to follow as we carry out our stewardships. We should strive to be like them and to work together in love and harmony as they do. President Gordon B. Hinckley often spoke of the importance of counselors. He said, The Lord put them there for a purpose. He further instructed us, Every morning when the First Presidency meets, I call on President Faust to present his business and we discuss it and make a decision. Then I call on President Monson to present his business and we discuss it and make a decision. Then I present the items which I wish to present, and we discuss them and make a decision. We work together. You can't be a one-man operation in a presidency. Counselors, what a wonderful thing are counselors. They save you from doing the wrong things. They help you to do the right things. End of quote. A counselor to President Joseph F. Smith once described how the First Presidency deliberated. When a case came before the President of the Church to judge, he and his counselors would talk it over and give it their careful consideration until they came to the same conclusion. That should be our pattern in presidencies. The revelations teach us to make decisions in quorums and presidencies in all righteousness, holiness, meekness, patience, brotherly kindness, and charity. The Lord has given us the pattern. We have sustained today the new First Presidency of the Church. They will teach us and show us the pattern that we should follow. Wisdom and strength will come to us as we look to the First Presidency as our ideal and our pattern of leadership. Great blessings will come to our families as we teach our children and grandchildren to love and sustain the leaders of the Church. As a young boy standing in my grandparents' home, I knew that we were led by men of God whom the Lord had placed there to guide us and I know it now. I bear witness that this is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are led by His apostles and prophets. I bear witness that the senior apostle, President Thomas S. Monson, has been called of God and that with his two noble counselors at his side, 
They will lead us in accordance with the mind and will of the Lord, whose Church this is. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.